Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books over at audible.com. There are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous range of genres and you can play them on just about any digital listening device that you have in your possession whether it's an iphone a kindle an android you name it and here is the deal folks right now for listeners of this program audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial go get casual vacancy the casual vacancy the new novel by jk rowling or how about mrs dalloway the classic by virginia wolf that one is narrated by Annette Benning. Annette Benning. Just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge. And hey, if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps me out. It helps the program. I get a few pennies, and that is uh, very pleasant. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. All right, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is writers exposing themselves. This is what nerds listen to. I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. What am I doing here? What am I doing with my life? What is the point of all this? When will I enter a new dimension? Are things going to get better? Can we clean up the ocean? Are things going to change? Is there a point? Uh, If matter is just energy condensed to a slow vibration, why am I so worried about dying? And what about outer space and polar bears and so on? Oh, Jesus, there's uh, quite a bit to think about. I'm a little bit exhausted, but I just took some espresso. I took some espresso. I shot some espresso. I drank it. I had a quadruple shot of espresso. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I am sitting here in front of this microphone and my hands are sweating. My hands are sweating and my heart is palpitating. Should I eat a burrito? (laughs) Should I eat a burrito on the air? Would that excite you? Would that make you tweet about me? I think I'm almost done with my book. Uh, There's some news. I keep talking about it, but it's the only thing in my life that feels interesting. I think I'm almost done with my novel. I think I'm almost there. But the finishing is slow. 
The finishing is slow. It's like a slow motion process. It's almost like I'm scared to finish it, which is kind of strange. Why is that? And why do I love this thing one minute and then hate it the next? What is wrong with me? Uh, Can you answer me that? Can anybody out there shed some light? If so, please email me. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, uh, next week you can get a copy of my brand new book. It is called Bored, B-O-A-R-D. I co-authored it with Justin Benton. It is a work of literary collage. It is strange. Uh, The contents of this book are derived entirely from the comment boards at thenervousbreakdown.com. That is my online culture magazine and literary community. I'm not kidding about this. The entire contents are derived from comment boards. Uh, Do you see what I'm saying? Bored, B-O-A-R-D. But then phonetically, it could also mean bored, uh, like B-O-R-E-D, as in, are you bored? You see what I'm saying? Do you understand what I mean? Do you uh, feel my vibration? My guest today is Michael Kimball. He is the author of several books, and I'm really pleased to have him here on the program. I've been a fan of his work for a while now, and his new novel, Big Ray, is making waves. It is available uh, right now at this moment in hardcover from Bloomsbury, and Sam Lipsight has this to say about it, quote, it's funny and terrifying, and it's his masterpiece, end quote. Uh, It's a short and powerful novel, and Michael and I are going to talk about it right now. We're going to talk about other stuff, too. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Michael Kimball, the author of Big Ray. I'm in Baltimore. I'm on the 10th floor of an apartment building looking at the sunset. Good sunset? The sunsets are pretty amazing here. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty great. So it'll go through some stages. Um with the actual sun going down. And then about 10, 15 minutes after that, the sky lights up in some different ways. So Yeah, we've been having good ones out here lately. I don't know what it is. Like, I guess it's the, the smog uh, or if it's the... Yeah, I think it's the end of the world. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the reason for it. Yeah. It gets brighter toward the end. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. Um, and like, yeah, I think there's just been, I've been taking pictures of them. Like they've been so spectacular that I find myself just like taking cell phone pictures of them and like face, Facebooking them or something. <laughs> right. It doesn't capture it though, does it? I've tried and I can't get how amazing it looks to my naked eye on the phone. Yeah, no, it never, it never lives up. But, uh, I don't know. I feel, I think I feel that like I'm, I'm constantly looking at this phone and I'm constantly looking at Facebook or Twitter or something. And I'm like, I should be doing something productive. And if I'm going to like the compromise, I think that I've worked in my head is that like, I'll take a picture of something beautiful in nature, you know, and like, I'll put that up. Sure. That, the, sure. How can spread I, it around. Yeah. Spread around the beauty, the natural beauty, remind people to go outside or something, you know? Right. Right. Um, so let's talk. I want to start actually by asking you about uh, big Ray. And there's a couple of things. There's two aspects of it that I find particularly compelling or interesting to discuss because um, I don't think I've touched upon this very much on this show, if at all. And the first one is uh, the issue of memoir versus novel and the fact that you sat down to write this thing and and initially conceived of it as a memoir, correct? Right, right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I uh, sat down writing it straight as a memoir as honest as I could, things exactly as I remembered them, all of that, holding myself to those the, 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 those rules associated with memoir. But I got maybe halfway through and became stuck in a way. Um, and 
didn't know how to handle some of the material and couldn't for, for various reasons. One, the difficulty of the material. Two, um, some of the people involved being alive still. Um, and also, the thing I found most frustrating was that with, with memoir, you can manage it to a certain extent by omitting things, leaving things out, but you can't change details. You can't make up details as we now, <laughs> you know, everybody's agreed upon. Uh, and, and, and so there's a limitation to, to what I was able to do with it as the person creating this thing. And at that point I decided to move to fiction, um, partly to manage those things, but also, uh, it was, it was a form I was more comfortable with. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so about how much how much changed? Do you know, like when you, I guess when you when you read the book or when you were reading the manuscript, you really like this is really a, a fiction, or is it? Would you say it? Can you can you comfortably classify it as like? thinly veiled autobiographical fiction or do you even bother well, with such classifications it's, it's, it, to to explain sort of what's still memoir or what is fiction is a little complicated one of the things i try to say is that most of the stuff that happens with the narrator was my life that stuff was still all true the the father character while mostly based on my father became a bit of a composite the um, the mother character is a bit of a composite. The sister character is a bit of a composite, and 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 so all of those characters got roughed up, recombined, things like that in different ways. I mean, my you know my actual family composition is was you know mother and father. I have, I have an older brother and a younger sister, so the older brother isn't even in the novel. Again, uh, the, the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah, so the older brother got cut. Um, <laughs> he wasn't interesting enough, and I think he understands that and doesn't hold that against me. But um, and, and that's some of the other stuff that happened too. Was, was I went back, and a lot of the things about the father's life, I really did some cutting there, um, and 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 tied a lot of things. Uh, up as quickly as I could. A lot of the life details that you know sort of needed to be there to ground some things, but but weren't doing a lot of other work. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, it's a very efficient book. You know, like the way that it's written, it feels. 
I, you know, I don't know. I, I admire this kind of book, and I, I repeatedly say this on this show. But the, you know, books that uh, are very efficient in their prose, that are that are uh, you know not necessarily huge in terms of word count, but don't feel like there are any words missing. You know. Sure, sure. And it was, and I mean, that was. I mean, one of the things I was trying to do in that efficiency is is, is tell the story a little faster. Um, sort of get it out there in some ways and make some decisions about what what needs to be told and what doesn't need to be told. Um, and so I felt there were a lot of things that could be cut out that way and 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 sort of began to really enjoy that and the and the pace that it created and the tension that it created. Yeah, it's nice to read. I don't know. I like reading books like that. Um, what about the speed with which you actually wrote the thing? Because that's also notable. Yeah, that was kind of crazy. I've never had anything like that happen before. I wrote it, um, well, I'd never written a book in under three years before. I mean, these, you know, my, my general understanding from my experience and everybody I know is that these things take years. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of exceptions. I know some people who do work rather quickly, but um, this was written in three months. God. And... And, you know, I've had small experiences like that, you know, with a chapter or a few chapters or, you know, even just a, a particular session of writing that where, where you're just sort of in that flow or zone or you, that feeling of rush and something just sort of takes over. But this was happening day and night for three months. Um you know, whenever I sat down to work on it, it was it was there, and there were times when I was just typing as quickly as I could, and it was probably two months for the first half of it, one month for the second half of it. It just after I made that switch to fiction, it took off. Uh, it went even faster. So, and you made that switch rather quickly. It wasn't like it doesn't sound like you really like deliberated for a long time. It's like the the idea to switch to fiction came to you, and you made the move. Yeah, that idea came, and at the same time, or near the same time, there was a, uh, the the organization that it took also be, just sort of. I don't even remember thinking it; it just became clear to me. Uh, and so there's the, the, the back and forth between what happens after his death and what happens in his life, and then you know a, three, a few other chapters thrown in there to mix things up a bit. Um, but the way that goes back and forth and then dovetails into the end. Um, that was just so obviously there and I didn't have to, it was, it was a realization that I didn't have to think about it again for the rest of the book. I knew exactly where, um, each chapter was going. Oh God, that must've been lovely. It must've been great. <laughs> it was, it was amazing. And you know, one of the crazy things is you had, so, so the terrible thing is it's three months of just this amazing feeling, feeling like you're doing the greatest thing ever. The, you know, the way we get lost in our own work. But then it ends, and you know, well, now, 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 what do I do? Uh, well, yeah, now, like the laws of karma, <laughs> the, the laws of karma, the laws of karma suggest that you're going to have like a seven year book next. <laughs> that's that's what it's looking like. So, um, yeah, yeah, there's some there's some payback coming for that, but I I, I wouldn't give it back. So. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it, like so. A couple of questions. Like, first of all, was this a book that you like had had been kind of? I mean, obviously, it had been working on your subconscious to a degree. But were you yeah. aware? Were you aware? Like, I want to write a book about this. I want to write about my father. I want to do something about this. I'm not sure what. And it was just sort of kind of brewing for a while. And then that's why you think maybe it, it shot out of you so quickly. 
I, I definitely think the material is sitting there um, waiting for me to be ready for it. Um, I had approached it one other time um, many years ago and did not get very far and gave it up. And then I had approached it maybe three years before um, actually writing this book. And I also couldn't handle it at that point either. So I think there was a, a bit of, of um, both, I would say even emotional maturity, just, you know, as a human being getting ready for it. And also aesthetic maturity. I think there were a bunch of things for me as a writer that came together that helped that happen. The form of Dear Everybody that was lots of pieces. I was going to say, yeah, there's a similarity. And, yeah, and, and so so that plus um, the Postcard Life Story Project, which was an attempt to tell you know somebody's whole life story in just a few hundred words, and so working with condensed life story in that sense also really informed the great. So I think all of those things came together to do that. The other part of it, I, I actually thought I was writing a different novel when I started writing this a, a chapter in the novel that was about fathers and I was just using material from my old life so even though I was thinking about that as fiction right at that point I was just it, it was the you know the classic simile disguised fiction I actually wasn't making anything up at all I was just putting the material down but that chapter took on a life of its own and then I and, and once I had over 50 pages 70 pages I ended up splitting it off and said well this is clearly a memoir you know haven't been haven't actually been able to write and now I'm writing it um and and, and so it I ended up getting there in sort of a strange way but I just you know I followed what was happening and 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 just let myself follow that as a writer yeah you know it's it's interesting like it, there's no it's not like a, a, a straight shot to the mountaintop. You know what I'm saying? Like it's always like this strange path. And it's not like, you know, it, and like lightning didn't strike. It was like you kind of accidentally realized that you had it finally, you know? It's just, yeah, it's, yeah. It seems and it was, I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about making stuff are those points of realization. Um, it's, it's often not trying to have an idea. It's the idea is there and you realize, oh, that's actually a really good idea. Yeah. And that's yeah, and that's the thing you take. Yeah. Okay, so what did a day in the life of you look like during this three month fever? I mean, like, were you literally? I mean, how many hours a day? What was it like? Were you writing it longhand? I'm I'm, I'm picturing you. Yeah. With like this like far away look in your eyes, just like in the zone or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that um, that is that is true, and I'll, I'll I'll back up to set the scene a little bit. I mean, I I um I also do I um I rewrite and edit some educational stuff and ghost some stuff, and um, that's usually how I mean that's sort of a chunk of my day most days, a few hours at least. Um, but for some reason, I had a bunch of projects with with people that weren't active at the time while I was doing this. And so all of a sudden I had more time than I normally do. And so I was waking up in the morning. I had a legal pad next to the bed. I would wake up and I would just start writing on the legal pad. When my hand cramped up, I would take the legal pad downstairs to the computer and just start typing it in. And in both 
instances when I was writing it with, you know, longhand and typing it in, is one of those things that gave me the structure for the book. Really, is, is it kept, you know, one memory led to another memory led to another one. I wasn't, I really didn't have to think in the normal ways I've had to think with other books. It just kept coming like that. And so um, it would be a thing where I would work for three, four hours uh, right after getting up. And then I would have, you know, some part of a normal day um, with my wife and the cats and the house and, you know, all that stuff. And then um, I would, again, uh, at night, sort of do the same thing. So um, work for, on it again for a few hours, and especially those nighttime sessions were the, the ones where you, you would, I would particularly get lost and be in a kind of daze and, and you know, something might happen, like the cat jumps on the desk and you all of a sudden realize that you're still, you, oh, right, I'm still here doing this thing. You, you get that lost in it. Wow. And, and uh, memory-wise, like, you know, because this is the thing about, you know, I've dabbled just a little bit in trying to kind of like piece together my past and it's like such an, a slippery thing, you know, like how did, how did you, yeah. fi- how, how did you find your memory? And I mean, I guess with a memoir, this is the, this is the thing. I mean, you don't want to lie, but it's all a lie. I mean, memory is so, you know, it's, it's so well, sure. It's one of the, it's one of the things I know about memory now is, is, is all memories are actually reconstructions. There's no, there's no set file card in your head for the time, you know, um, X, Y, Z happened. Um, you, there are tons of natural memory studies that, that will show people remembering the things very differently even a year later. Yeah, well, it's, like, so, it's like that game Telephone where you sit in a circle. You know? <laughs> it is. Your brain playing its own game of telephone. And, and so... You know, it's a way. To, so, so one of the things I think, you know, just one of the ideas I was always working with, especially when it was memoir, was just trying to be as honest with myself as possible. And, um, but I found the act. You know, once I started in that mode, remembering this thing that happened as a kid, or remembering that thing that happened as a kid. It just, it really, you know, the trigger to be anything. In those pieces, it could be it could be um, something you know. There's there's a chapter about the father sleeping. So there's all this stuff about the father sleeping, but then there's all this other material about the narrator, the boy sleeping, and nightmares, and and getting put to bed, and and how that related to some of the abuse. And so there are all these ways, you know, the the sleeping led to the childhood memories of those other things, but it also the sleeping was also an offshoot from the father being fat and the father having sleep apnea. And so there are all kinds of tangents that any particular thing can lead to. And I just let the pieces do that. Just let them see. Yeah. You just got, they kind of like, it's like dominoes, you know, they sort of, yeah. 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 So, um, like, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your actual past and, and dealing with all this delicate stuff and drudging up all these memories. And, um, you know, people talk about writing memoir or they talk about writing a book, particularly when it's a book that processes pain or some sort of difficult experience of uh, one's past. And the word catharsis gets thrown around. And, you know, it's, sure. a, it's a cathartic act to make this art and to go through the process of writing a story or whatever it is, you know, whether it's a memoir or a novel or a 
collection of essays. Like, do you think that that's legitimate? Did you have a cathartic experience writing this? Has it released you to, um, uh, you know, a different understanding? Yeah. yeah. You know, I never saw, as a, as a writer, I never started out with the idea that I would do anything approaching, you know, writing a novel as some kind of therapy, but that's what happened. <laughs> and, and, I feel fortunate that it happened. I feel better that it happened. When I, I mean, finishing this book, and for months and months after, I just felt this this release and this release, and I had this new lightness, and and it felt as if somebody had been pushing down on my chest for years, but I didn't know it, <laughs> and that had been removed. And so there was this tremendous um, sense of relief from that. And the the other thing that happened, and it didn't quite dawn on me, um, a friend of mine here in Baltimore read the book and sent me this really beautiful note about it. Um, uh, She had grown up uh, um, in an abusive household and was talking a bit about that. But the thing that she said that really struck me, and I hadn't, quite realized it myself when she said, you know, the book is told without shame. And this is one of the really difficult things about abuse in whatever form it, it, it takes is, is the, the, the victim of that abuse often feels as if they somehow did something that led to that or caused that or was a trigger for it. And I think that's the other thing writing the book gave me. It let me let go of any type of shame that might be associated with that. And, and that was a, um, that was a pretty great gift from the, the, the book to me. So uh, I was fortunate. That yeah. way. Well, and I feel like I should ask since, you know, a lot of listeners probably haven't read the book yet. Um, you know, when you, sure. ta- when you talk about the abuse in your childhood, uh, you know, it was your father was abusive towards you. Can you like, can you talk a little bit about that without, you know, without having to get too, uh, you know, too much into the tawdry details or whatever. Um, is tawdry the right sure. word? You know what I mean. Uh, it could be the right word. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on your uh, perspective. Um, I mean, there's, you know, there's some pretty brutal stuff. Uh, and, it, I mean, one of the things, to, so growing up, it, for for me, it was there was a... Um, you know, it was emotional abuse, psychological abuse in, in those sorts of ways, um, both directed toward me and, and seeing it directed toward uh, my mother and siblings. Um, and, uh, and, that, and that's something that, that maybe isn't even recognized as, as much as it should be, I, I, I tend to think. Um, but the, the worst part for me was the physical abuse and sort of the fear that generated um, and the, 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 the way it would happen without you knowing or having really any idea why it was happening, in part because, of course, you, you, know, you couldn't understand one, you're a little kid, and, and two, it's happening, you know, the abuser that probably doesn't even know why they're doing it. Um, but there's this thing that happens with abuse that, that I've only come to understand in retrospect. And it's just sort of, after that thing starts, after that happens that first time, and there's a potential for it to happen any time after that, 
the world shifts. The world becomes a scary place in a way. There's a kind of fear. There's a kind of reticence. Um, you become more reserved, more withdrawn, more distant. Um, it, it, it becomes a thing that the, the world becomes a place that's infinitely more difficult to manage than it was before that abuse happened. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's like if you if you lose that. I mean, I feel like you know when you're a little kid, your parents are the the, the firewall or they're the foundation or sure. whatever, you know. And when you lose that, all bets are off. You know, <laughs> like that's sure right. I mean, you you lose trust in other adults as well. You know, that simple idea of just being safe. Um, you you know, it's gone. <laughs> Um, it, it, it's confusing, it's scary, uh, all, all of those things. And I think, you know, this is just, um, it, it, as much as people are able to talk about it today, I still don't think it's talked about as fully or as openly as it might be. Yeah, it's a difficult, I mean, it's a difficult subject. And like you say, there's so much shame associated with it. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, rationalization of it. and It's a weird thing. Yeah, people, yeah. Like, I think I want to say I read an interview with you where you were talking about how it might have been on the nervous breakdown where you were talking about how, um, you know, people often explain it away or deny it somehow and they're and thereby enabled. Yeah. You know, that stuff happens. Yeah. No, I mean, that's and, 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 I mean, that's ground I cover a little bit in Big Ray in some different ways. And so the, the you know, there's that thing of, of you know, well, your, your, your father just played rough. Or, um, there's the um, I can't remember the book now. Tracy Ross wrote a really great book, The Source of All Things, something like that. But it's partly about uh, well, it's mostly about abuse and that point when it starts for her and, and all the fallout that happens after that. But in, in that, in hers, the, the the way it's described is the the father was just, but the stepfather was just tucking her in. And there are all those kinds of, they're just tucking you in. They're just helping you getting, to get dressed. They're just playing rough. Um, you know, so-and-so is just overly affectionate. Um, you know, a lot of this came out with the Sandusky stuff. I don't know if you followed any of that. As much as I could deal with. It's, you know, it's like... Yeah, no, I know. I mean, it was, it was, it was, um, it was pretty disgusting at a, quite a few different levels. Um, but those, you know, some of those things were passed around, though, those, those explanations that smooth it over because people, you know, adults don't really want to deal with it, even when it's brought to their attention. It's, it's even on that level, it's too difficult. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I don't know. Did you read the, uh, the Malcolm Gladwell piece? And I think it was Malcolm Gladwell in the New Yorker. It was about Sandusky and about predators and how they groom and how sophisticated it can get and. Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a relatively new parent, and so I'm reading this, just going, "Oh my god!" Like they, you know, yeah, it's terrifying. They, they'll charm, they'll charm their way into your life. That's basically what he did, and he found, um, you know, in Joe Paterno, he had like this coach who was right. like, completely like, you know, had like monomaniacal obsession with football and wanted to think about nothing else. And right. So he sort of had like the perfect, you know, perfect ally in that sense. Yeah, he had great cover for all of that. There was this whole institution and organization helping him do it. Yeah, ugh, just craziness. Um, so when you when you talked earlier about the cathartic process of writing, 
uh, this novel and how it, it helped like lift this pressure off of your chest and, and lift this, sure. this feeling of shame that you'd kind of carried uh, through all these years. Like a, a parallel question that comes to mind is, did you find any, uh, during the writing process, did you find yourself at any point experiencing an epiphany about your father? Did you un- come to understand him or why he did what he did in a new way that, that, you know, or does it continue to be a mystery? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, um, it's a difficult question. I, I don't, I don't know that I have a clear answer for it at all. I don't think I came to a better understanding of him. I maybe came to a point of acceptance of it. And I would it's, it, it's, it, you know, in the book, I, I ask some questions or say, I wish I could still talk to him or, you know, you know, have those questions that I couldn't ask before that I might be able to ask now that I'm ready to ask them. But also in asking, you know, in thinking that for myself, I also realized that I probably would not have gotten any answers that would have been satisfying. And that even, and so just asking the questions for myself, just thinking the questions for myself is as much of an answer as I was ever going to get anyway. And so I think you do reach a point of acceptance with that. And I think that I can, so with my own father, I can still hate him for the things he did. I can still also love him for the parts of him that were good. Well, no, you, and, I, I remember you saying that's that. one of the, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's complicated like that, but, and, but to, to allow yourself all of those emotions. Right. Well, no, I mean, cause it's refreshing to kind of hear somebody talk about it in a nuanced way. Like I, I definitely relate to, uh, anyone who approaches things with like, like nuance and, uh, almost like tedious nuance. It's totally great. for me. <laughs> I understand that, but I mean, you know, you always hear, I think like a lot of the pop psychology tells you that you can't truly, um, transcend an experience, uh, unless you've forgiven, you know, and right. I, it's nice to hear somebody say, well, you know, I don't forgive everything. You know, there's some things I will never forgive, but I've come to an acceptance and, there are other things that I love, and you know what I'm saying. Like that—that te- that seems right. to be closer to the truth. And I, I think, yeah, and that idea of forgiveness that that is out there in, in in our popular culture, and would be the thing that somebody you barely know would tell you, well, you you know, you just need to forgive and let it go, and it'll you know, then you'll be able to move on. And I really, I I think that may be true for some good group of people, but it's definitely not true for anybody. And there's no requirement to forgive. And I think in, when they talk about forgiveness like that, they're, they're often talking about, well, I forgive the person who did that to me. I think the key actually is forgiving yourself for thinking you ever had anything to do with it. And as a child, and, and as a child, did you, I mean, like, like when you're like, can you, can you remember being a kid and processing it? Like, what did I do? Like, you know, is that really how it goes? <laughs> Well, I do remember lots of um, episodes where pain was inflicted and, and, and being bewildered and not, not understanding why it happened, trying to figure it out, retracing everything, still not being able to figure it out because ultimately there is no pattern. It's, 
it's you know it's something and so it isn't something you're doing it isn't something in your control it's it's clearly being imposed on you and it's and it's completely random i mean i guess like i think of some abuse you know certain abuses i guess there are signs or it's a substance related or you know what i'm saying like there are certain sure. certain sure. there are certain triggers but it wasn't like it happened every tuesday <laughs> you know like right no you can't and schedule the, the, it Right. And there's a chapter, uh, I can't remember exactly where it is in the book, but the narrator's just going through all of the different ways the father might get angry, the different reasons he might get angry. And they are completely random. (laughs) They just, you know, it could be anything. It could be that somebody, this was a real, that he, somebody read the newspaper before he did. It once I mowed the lawn in the wrong direction. (laughs) They were just really, really random things. Wow, just like so much, like so much anger, you know, just like under the surface, something. So much anger that anything could could tip it over. Yeah. So, have uh, family members read the book, and like, what's their response been? Like, you know, have you gotten a response? Yeah, uh, my my both my mother and my sister have read the book. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has, but um, both of them um, uh, both of them liked the book quite a bit. They've always been big supporters of mine in that way, uh, and both of them um, uh, were were. I, I think there was a kind of catharsis for them as well. Yeah, well, uh, different, sure. different, different than mine, but but um, definitely, yeah. Well, that's got to feel good, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, it does. I think I think there's a I think there's a kind of release in that, um, yeah, for other people, and and so it was it was nice, especially to see it. Um, um, you know, my sister recognizes some of the physical abuse and uh, all of that too, and so you know. She's not a writer, but it, it, it was a way for her to work through some of it as well. Well, you know, I mean, that's about as good as art can do, or at least it's one of the best things art can do. I think if you're, I mean, it's one thing to get a catharsis yourself because you get the joy of making the thing, but if somebody can right. read, if somebody can read it and, and have that kind of experience, that's yeah, that's awesome, you know. Yeah, no, and I've been I've been really struck by just some of the you know sometimes it's on Facebook, sometimes it's on email, sometimes it's in person. People who are just who I didn't even know, you know, had rough childhoods as I did or, um, you know, difficulty managing the death of a parent. Um, but I've just, you know, a lot of people have just said some really beautiful things um, and, and how it resonated with them. So. Well, you know, it's interesting. That, I've, been, I've been watching this. Um, we're not watching this, but I've been noticing this lately um, in my like, ongoing uh, quest to understand why certain art catches or why certain, you know what I'm saying? Like just trying to notice what works or what resonates with people and over sure. and over and over again. And this is probably like a really obvious point, but one that's uh, nevertheless worth making is that when you're honest in some way, uh, or you, or at least you're working with real uh, emotional truth and you're uh, sharing that somehow, Sure. And, sure. And, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I, I was, yep. listen, I was listening to, uh, like, I think it was Tignataro on, uh, you know, NPR the other day, and she did this comedy set where she just comes out and starts telling everybody that she has cancer, and it's like, 
you hear a clip of it and you're right away, you know, just like, Oh, you know, like, and, right. uh, it's not easy to do, you know, it's not easy to make art of these things. And yet when you do it, uh, it tends to get people that doesn't necessarily mean that like 60 million people are going to read the thing or listen to your comedy, <laughs> right. but for the people, for the people who do, it tends to, tends to resonate, you know? Yeah, I think if you truly put yourself out there and you don't hold back and you don't try and hide anything, you don't, you know, try and smudge anything, uh, I, I think people recognize that. Okay, okay. Um, but let me stop you here because this is where it's an, yeah. inter- it's an interesting question for a fiction writer is putting yourself, sure. putting yourself out there but, and not holding back or smudging anything. But the, the, the process of making fiction... Um, I guess could be perceived in one way as some smudging. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you, yeah, how do sure. you, how do you maintain the integrity of what we're talking about while at the same time fictionalizing? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, it was one of the things that came along with the, the decision to make it fiction. I felt as if I could get closer to the emotional truth in fiction than I could in memoir. And I'm not sure I have a great explanation that for that part of it is just I have more facility with fiction than I do with memoir. That's never been something I've memoir was never something I was entirely comfortable with. But I felt as if it it, it was more. I mean, it's it, 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 it's counterintuitive, but I felt as if it were more honest as fiction than as memoir. Yeah, it's like lying to tell the truth. You know, I guess is it was it was the proper vehicle for how I could tell this story. Well, um, shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about size and obesity and how this figures, how this figures into the book, but also how it figures into our culture. I think it's an interesting topic. You don't see a lot of characters in fiction who are overweight or a lot of characters in movies, you know, you know, it's under underrepresented portion, uh, you know, uh, of our fictional populations, but in, in America, at least it's. It's it's increasingly common, you know. Big people are increasingly common, and obesity is increasingly common to kind of a, a shocking degree. And sure. I just want to hear you talk about the experience of having this father who was an extremely large man. Like, not only um, was there abuse happening, but he was also physically imposing and right. b- big in a way that um, marked him in our in our society a lot of times. Uh, you know, as being what the subject of ridicule or whatever you, you want to call it, teasing and all the stuff that comes along, right. with it, especially when you're a kid. Like, can you talk right. about that? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, this, I had a fat father before that people had fat fathers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he was, he was you the know, original in, fat father. Yeah. In the, in the, in the 70s, being, being fat was an entirely different thing than it is today. And there just weren't that many people that were overweight in that way. And um, so my father was always actually, I mean, Big Ray. I mean, he he was this big guy. And it was part, you know, after the abuse started, it went from being a point of protection in a way to being uh, a point of fear. And one of the things that made him scary and like a monster in that sense. The other thing that goes along with it is as a kid, you know, you're like, you're made fun of because of who your father or mother is, you, you know, by association, um, that sort of thing happens. And so having an overweight father was a thing to be embarrassed about or ashamed of. 
and the other kids let you know that. Uh, so that, I mean, that was a difficult thing. I don't know. I wonder if that's still the same today with, with so many more people, um, being overweight. I, I'm, I'm not quite certain if that would be the same. Um, there seems to be a different kind of acceptance with it, I think. Um, but it was, not you Los, know, not in Los Angeles. <laughs> well, not in Los Angeles and, you know, maybe not in New York, um, you know, the, the cities are a little bit different, but it's, um, uh, but the numbers are really kind of staggering. It's one, it's about a third overweight and a third obese. That's crazy. That's, I mean, that's two thirds of our population. Well, yeah, no. And not only that, but like you were saying, like, a, you know, in the seventies, it wasn't this way really in the eighties. It wasn't quite this way. It's really happened in the no. last 20 years. So like something is going yeah. on. Like, I don't know. Like, do you, I mean, I think part of it's just food and quality of food and processed sugar yep. or whatever you want to call it. Absolutely, but like absolutely. There's, there's portion this, size, all that. Yeah, and then there's the then there's just the emotional component, which there always is. And right. uh, you know, for me, and I think that was the issue with my father was that emotional component. I mean, he was an unhappy person, and that that was one of the places he found some satisfaction i think yeah well and it's like uh, how do you process um i think i read this uh, you know at the nervous breakdown again but it was like you talking about how to this day when you see a very large man you know it kind of kind of triggers yeah. some things inside of you like how do you you know how do you react yeah you know? no it's, it's it's odd there's still um yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that happen. There are just some things that are still going to be inescapable. And so when I see somebody that size and when I see how they move, especially, there are particular ways somebody with uh, an obese body moves. And, you know, that, it's, it's with that, that thing is the biggest trigger for me in sort of seeing him and being reminded of him, the, the, the negative parts of him. Um, and I don't know if that will go away. I mean, it, it can be that it can be, it can also be the ways, the particular ways somebody is overweight because people are overweight in very different ways as, as, as well. And so, you know, with their particular ways of, the fat hung around his face that will, will be very resonant for me or his arms or um, um, often um, overweight people use their hands a little differently to help themselves get up and sit down and things like that. And so there are all those sorts of things that you don't see so much, but you see in those very particular ways. And so, I have I have those sort of triggers, and then um, one that will still get me. If you ever, if we ever meet in person, and you recognize me and approach me from the side or from behind, and just put your hand on my shoulder, I would have a, a flinch reaction. Like that's just still there. Wow. So yeah, I mean, I can see that, and then. What about your relationship with, I mean, because you're not a, you don't seem, I've seen you in photos, you don't seem like a very big guy. Um, you know, like how, how is it, like through the years, have you become like very conscious of what you eat or anything like that in an effort to not be big or, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, in some way, I, I, um, I don't always have the best diet, but I'm really active. 
and um, it, it is something I'm really aware of, and it's and it's one one of the many ways that I really do not want to be like my father. Yeah, well, I fe- you know I find myself like very concerned about that. Like, I just do not like to carry weight on my body. Uh, sure. And the, like, I was just thinking, uh, as we were talking earlier about like my emotional response to, especially like really morbidly obese people. Uh, right. And, you know, uh, to be fair and like, I think this is like the, you know, these are obviously, um, related, but when I see somebody who's really morbidly obese, or if I see somebody who's like anorexic, I have almost right. an equivalent response. It's like this, it's like this externalized, unhideable sadness and pain that just like really affects me. And I like maybe disproportionately because the truth is that if I see an alcoholic on the streets of Los Angeles, which happens just about every day, like somebody who's just a junkie or whatever, walking around that I do not have that experience. But if I I see this, there's a, there's an anorexic girl in my neighborhood who walks around on sunset Boulevard and I see her probably twice a week and it it just hits me right in the chest. You know, I'm just like, Oh, and uh, I wonder about that. You know, like, I, I guess it's just the fact that, I don't know, maybe with the people who are drunk, I'm like, well, at least they're high or, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what it is, but it seems like with the food, right. with the food things, um, and the body stuff, it's just like, you can't mask it at all or something. I don't know. Well, it is. I mean, I think it, I mean, alcoholism and drug addiction, they are visible in different ways, but there is something about the food, um, diseases that are, are, I absolutely agree with the sadness um, more more than ever, um, and there's I don't even quite know how to say this. It's there's almost as if it almost seems like it should be easier to help them somehow, but. I, I, I don't know that there is. And the, the other thing I was thinking is the addictive part of it. I mean, I think people, when people do eat like that or not eat like that, it's its own high. Right. That's true. There, there's a high with eating, you know, tons of food. And there's a, a weird thing that happens to the body and mind when you don't eat food. Well, yeah. And that's the thing. The other thing, too, is like in addition to being at high, it's also addictive in the same way that being yeah. an alcoholic or a drug addict is addictive. And so maybe I'm failing to recognize that properly because like when you see an alcoholic or a, like a strung out junkie, it's like, ah, oh, they're just hooked, you know? But when you see right. somebody who's, who's really, really big, it's like, would you just stop eating? You know? And it's like, it's not that. Simple. Yeah. But uh, no, it's not. Their brains are trained in, in the you know same addictive pathways and same reward centers. And you know, it's, it's just as inescapable. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, so let's talk, I want to talk a little bit about you and your career and how you came up, you know, like, how did you get started sure. doing this first of all? Like, I'm assuming like it, writing has been an outlet for you, um, since you were young. Is that true? Not exactly. I mean, growing up, I was, I was, um, I didn't read or write too much. Um, I was a good student and all that, but I was much more interested in sports and, girls and so you were, you were, uh, you were normal <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was as much as I could be so um, you know that was a lot of my my younger years it really wasn't until college that I started writing a bit um, oh, wait where, and, where are you from where did you grow up 
So I grew up in, in Lansing, Michigan, uh, um, went to school in East Lansing. It's the kind of place where you're a really good student. If you're a really good student growing up there, what you were supposed to do was, um, especially if you're good at science and math, like I was, you were supposed to be an engineer and go get a job at GM or Ford or whatever, because those were, that was pretty much the best kind of job you could have. So, um, I was continually shuttled toward those things throughout school. And it wasn't until college that I sort of broke out of that and, and you know, realized that I might be happier doing something else. Uh, so, so that was a, that was a big part of it. And also part of why it came a little later to me than it might have to some other people. Um, so I came in college and I started as a poet and I really wasn't very good at that. And I tried to write short stories and I was also pretty bad at that. And it wasn't until I tried to write a novel that I finally started to find my own voice. And um took me a bunch of years to write that first book. It was about um, five to six years start to finish. And then um, I couldn't get an agent to take me on. I couldn't get anybody to publish the book. I ended up with 119 rejections from basically every editor in the United States that I had an address for. Uh, and then that, I, I, was, uh, I was working at an uh, educational publisher at the time. There was an article in Publishers Weekly about UK houses being more open to American literary fiction than US houses. And they named, I think, four publishers. I sent it off. And maybe a month later, I got a call from um, Leo Hollis, who was an editor for Fourth Estate at the time. And he's, he's, you know, he was just so excited. He said he had read the thing in one sitting and absolutely loved it, and they wanted to offer a contract. And so that's how I finally broke in, was this sort of random thing. So wait, in the U.K.? In the U.K., right. And so... I still have a bit of an uh, uh, unorthodox or untraditional um, publishing um, path because most of my stuff still runs through the UK first. Oh, interesting. And you were sending this to them directly without an agent? Without an agent. I just, I didn't know better. I just did it, you know, I couldn't get an agent. So I said, I'm going to do it myself. Wow. And it worked. (laughs) And... Um, yeah, and it worked. And I, I, you know, looking back, I don't know how I did that. I don't know why I didn't stop after 45 rejections or 70 or 90 or, you know, 110. Um, I don't know if I could do that now, but I, I, I was able to keep going. Like at some point you had to have been bummed out, right? Were you getting discouraged at all by these? I mean, not, not enough to stop, but I mean, were you depressed at any point? Yeah, with the first with the first couple of dozen rejections, you you do have to do a serious reevaluation, and you're sort of like, oh well, maybe I haven't done what I thought I did. And um, yeah, you ask yourself some serious questions and whether or not you should be doing this, or um, you know, maybe that wasn't the book where you write, you know, or do you write a second book or do you just put it all away and do something else? But I find that, like, I find that people who really have the bug to do this can't stop, even if they. I mean, they might stop right. for a little while, but eventually you're going to get right. back. You know, <laughs> like, there's no turning right. back. You're, there, there are people who are lifers, I think, and uh, I think. The yeah, other, I think that's yeah. I was having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and I was like, 
I just don't, you know, being melodramatic the way that I uh, sometimes am. And I'm like, I just don't know after this one, like this is taking so much out of me. I'm sure, you know, and she was just like, shut up, you know, <laughs> it's a little ridiculous. That's the, way, that's the way, yeah, no, I have this conversation on with my son, Adam or Joe and, you know, and it's just sort of, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to write anything again. Maybe that's it. And, you know, we all know we're actually going to, it's just when that will be, maybe it won't be this year, but. Um, you know, we all know we're coming back to it at some point. <laughs> you can't leave forever. <laughs> um, nope. So I, how do you work? I mean, obviously it seems to vary because past books have taken you years and this one took you three months, but um, like, do you have like a really regimented approach? Or are you someone who's like type A and has their schedule and wakes up every morning at the crack of dawn or is it more uh, sporadic <laughs> than that? Uh, definitely not waking up at the crack of dawn. Um uh, so it's, it's more variable and it often depends on where I am with a project. Uh, when I'm, especially when I'm starting something new, I try to be disciplined about it and sit down with it most days, uh, uh, just to keep it in my head. I think that's important to not lose that thread or energy. Um, but for me, you know, in early stages, that can be a couple hours a day kind of thing. Uh, and it's in a sort of later stages where you will finally know what you have and what the voice is and where things are going or later stages of revision where I'm spending a lot more time a day on something. Yeah, you kind of like break into a gallop at the end or something, right? Yeah, I mean, once once you have it all in your head, it, it, you, you take over in a different way. And I think there are even different parts of the brain that, you know, from working on a draft to revising a draft to, you know, finishing something and tightening all the little things up. Um, there, there, I think there are different kinds of thinking involved there. So do you do, do you teach? Is that right? Nope. Uh, I've, I've never really taught. Um, it's, it's the, the, you know, and as you know, literary fiction doesn't quite pay the bills. Um, <laughs> I, don't so, know. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, um, uh, it, I do, um, so I, I use my writing skills elsewhere. I edit, um, and rewrite and, um, sometimes actually write, uh, college textbooks. Oh, wow. Like, okay. Yeah. You mentioned earlier too, that you were like, had a, yeah. sci a science and math brain. So are you, yeah, are, you so, doing, are you doing like science and math textbooks and stuff like that? So it's, um, I mostly do psychology texts. And I do pretty much every course you might have. I've, I've probably edited a textbook in that, you know, for every psychology major. Um, in the last few years, I did come back to the math and science because not so many editors have that background. And so I've been doing a bunch of statistics tests. I think it's even difficult to say statistics textbooks. Um, uh, so I've been doing those a bunch Um just because I, I sort of had both both parts of that, the writing side and the math side. So well, that's that became a bit of a specialization. Well, yeah, that's unusual. And so the uh, natural question to ask is if you've got this science brain and this math brain, uh, do you factor that into your creative process? Do you think that it, it, it affects the way you approach your fiction work? It does at times. I mean, um, it can be everything from, 
you know, giving myself little numbered goals for word count or that sort of thing and breaking it down into a kind of schedule to with, with something like Big Ray, I had a, a one I had one sheet that had each of the chapters on it and then there was a um, a double level code for what they covered and how they covered it. And so it became this elaborate structure that I was able in the very late stages, I saw that there were a couple holes um, because of how I was able to double label it and, and was able to go back and move some things around and, and things snapped into place in a different way. So. See, that sounds awesome. Just to have like, <laughs> to have some sort of structure and some color coding going on. I need to get into that. Yeah. That, would yeah. help, that would help me. So, and then on a, on a, a similar note, you know, writing uh, or editing these textbooks and doing yeah. this, this kind of, you know, dry uh, work. I'm assuming some, I mean, if you're editing a statistics textbook, it's got to be pretty dry at times, right? Is that a fair Yeah, I mean, it's not the most exciting thing, but um, the, the people I work with can be kind of great. Uh, and um, one of the interesting things about textbooks is there, there really is a different kind of way of thinking about a particular field, whether it's stats for the social sciences or abnormal psychology or developmental psychology, there really are different ways of thinking about these things um, that that you then have access to and uh, develop a certain kind of expertise with. And I find that sort of fascinating. Well, yeah, and it brings me back to when we were, you were talking earlier about the projects and the experiences that you had leading up to Big Ray, where whether it was the uh, writing of Dear Everybody or it was the uh, postcard um, project, you know, which gave you this sort of, uh, you know, uh, window into how to write a compressed life story. Like, right. is, is there anything that you feel like you gain from doing this editorial work in textbooks that, like, might, for instance, um, help you t- simplify complexity? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, when you have to write a textbook, you're obviously yeah. you're writing it from an instructional point of view, so you have to try to right. clarify, and you you can't be um, you know, too long winded. You can't talk as though you're speaking yep. to an expert. You have to talk to somebody who's brand new to it. So, you know, I don't know. I, I can see how that could be helpful. Yeah. No, I think there are a few things going on there and, and clarity is a big part of it. Um, you know, that's sort of the number one rule, something simply being clear and accessible. Um, one of the other things is you, you, you have to, with a textbook as an editor, you're looking at it in two ways. One, for the student and just making it accessible for them at that level, but two for the professor and making sure it's interesting to them on a different level. So you're thinking, of, so, you're thinking of characters somehow, you know, like it feels like. Right? <laughs> well, right. I mean, they're, they're both, you know, this abstract version of the professor and the student are both sort of hanging out there at the same time. And then the other thing I try in, in um, you know, besides just, helping authors create um, it, it, at least some resemblance uh, or semblance of an interesting example. Um, you know, some of, some of the fiction skills can come in handy there. But I think the, the thing that most ties into what we've been talking about, one of the things I try to do is figure out ways educational authors can tell or present as much information as possible as quickly as possible. 
And that's part of what happened with Big Ray, too. So just, you know, having working with that thought all the time definitely puts my, my mind in that mode for fiction as well. Well, I mean, that's your, I think that's kind of like your style, right? I mean, would you agree? Or do you feel, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely become that, absolutely. Um, there's, there, there's a, it, it's gotten tighter and faster, I think, as, as I've moved forward. So. Do you ever read uh, Sarah Manguso? Yeah, sure. She does the same thing, and it's just like holy mercy! Like that level of compression is so great to me. I, I, I envy. Yeah, you know. And, uh, the, yeah, the Guardians is amazing. What was that little book that was in that trilogy? The McSween. Did you read that one? Those tiny pieces. No. Uh. Uh-uh. There was a trilogy. It was her and Devil and Unfirth, and then Dave Eggers had one in there too. Um, and the Unfirth was fantastic, but that Manguso is this amazing thing, and a lot of people haven't read it. it, it um, they're, they're sort of short, prosy pieces. Um, really great. Yeah, and but like, and, dis- and they look deceptively simple. You know, like <laughs> right, and they very much are not. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, when you work like that, like when you're trying to kind of pare down and get your simplicity and find that clarity, um, how many revisions are we talking? Like, you know, have you gotten better at it over the years or have you just gotten better at knowing when you finally have it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I've definitely gotten better at it over the years. And it used to be the kind of thing where I was writing a lot and tearing it down. I write less now and, and so there's much less to tear down. And something like Big Ray, um, the voice felt so distinct and so much its own separate thing, just something that I hadn't quite done before, that I didn't mess with it too much. I, 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 there were some cuts in late stages, um, but not a lot, and not a lot of rewriting. It, um, there, there was really, when I finished Big Ray, there was one revision. Wow. That's great. So... Um, I think it does, you know, we more and more find our own sentences, our own ways of saying things, of what parts of the story we want to tell, all of that. So um, if writing does get easier, those are the ways it gets easier. So, okay, so with that in mind, what are you working on now, if anything? Are you, are you on something, or are you on to something new, or are you, are you kind of taking a break after this, uh, this fever broke? I have, I've had about a year and a half of a break um, where I really wasn't able to do much. Um, but just in the last month or so, I've started on something new. So, um, so it should be done in a few weeks. Fingers, yeah, so by the end of the year, I'll, I'll, I'll have that out to everybody. <laughs> yeah, pressure's on. You've set a precedent for yourself now. It's like anything past three months is just, you know, you've hit the wall. Why, what am I wasting my time on? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, um, I congratulate you on this book. It's gotten a great reception. You must be thrilled, right, with the with the reception that it's got? Uh, no, I'm absolutely thrilled. I didn't I didn't expect this kind of. Um, I, I mean, I've never had this kind of mainstream coverage before. It just never happened. So um, it's it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, it's great. I hope uh, I hope it continues. And uh, do, do we get everything? Is there anything else you have uh, that the urge to say to people? <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I think we covered a lot here. Yeah, I think we got all the bases. Well, um, Michael, I appreciate the time, and uh, I wish you the best of luck both with uh, you know the rest of the rollout for Big Ray, and also with whatever it is that you're working on now. Thank you. Thanks a lot, and thanks for having me today. <laughs> 
Okay, folks, that is the program. That is Michael Kimball. Go get his new novel. It is called Big Ray. It is out there in hardcover from Bloomsbury. You can find Michael online at michael-kimball.com. He's on Facebook, and his Twitter handle is at Michael Kimball. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. If you would like to browse among my tweets, the show has a Facebook presence, and if you would like to email me, the address, once again, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, hey, don't forget to go get the app, the free, official Other People app. It is available for your various devices, your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, your Android device. It is free. Uh, it is the best way to listen to this show, so go get it. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And I think that's it. I think I'm finished. I think I'm winding down. I think... The effects of the espresso are wearing off. I think I need water. I need water. I need water. Uh, why did I just say that three times? Please remember that Sinclair Lewis died of a heart attack and that pretty much every artist prior to the 20th century rode around on a horse. That's it for now. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It was very fun talking to Michael Kimball. Go get his book and uh, go get that app and go out and do something that causes you to uh, forget yourself. Do that. Put yourself into ecstatic contact with the universe and don't let anyone tell you that things aren't weird. Uh, here's the problem, folks. People tend to forget just how truly strange this all is. Uh, this is strange. This is strange. Do you hear me? Is it sinking in? Look at your hands, for God's sakes. Wiggle your fingers. Do it right now. Look at your hands. Wiggle your fingers. How did that happen?